You are listening to episode 12, Life in America, from an Australian perspective, with special guest, Inna Serlin. I'm Diana Elliott, and I'm a freelance writer from Melbourne, Australia. And I'm Donald Betts. I'm a former U.S. state senator from Kansas. We talk about hot topics relevant to Americans and Australians, what makes us different and what makes us similar. It's not the place, but a state of mind. Greenland. So a couple of weeks ago we had on Greenland two Americans who are now living in Australia, Paul Senos and Cindy Bors, who gave us a fantastic insight into life from their American hometowns and now compared to their life in Australia, which they now pretty much call home. So today we thought we'd invert that and talk to an Australian who's been living in America for a number of years. So it's with great pleasure that we welcome to Greenland Inna Serlin. Now Inna and I worked together many moons ago and since then she she went over to the US. She's been living in America for the last eight years. Four of those she was living in New York City and I actually on a trip over there a few years ago I was lucky enough to catch up with her and she was living the life. It was just fabulous and the rest of the time she's been living and studying in rural Appalachia. So she's worked in corporate America. She's recently finished grad school in Ohio studying playwriting. Fantastic writer is Inna, really talented and we'll put some links to her her works on our show notes page if you're interested in having a look and I encourage you to do so. She's gone from living in New York and the hustle and bustle and the excitement of the big city there to living in one of the most economically challenged parts of the country. So we thought it would be a great opportunity for us to learn a little bit more about her experience in America and what brought her home. So yes, we're very excited to have on the Greenland this week Inna Serlin, who joins us after spending eight years in America, um, first in New York City and then the Appalachia. Mm-hmm. Do we say the Appalachia? Oh, it's not just Appalachia, it's, is it? It's Appalachia. Appalachia, yeah, it's a whole region. It covers uh, a number of states, actually. Inna Inna and I sort of worked together many, many moons ago. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Well, just before you set off, actually. And, yeah, Donald um, is my co-host. Donald, meet Inna. Hi, Donald. Hey, Inna. Hi. How are you? I'm okay. Um, I came back to Australia just over a month ago in this whole... Uh, global mess um, right before the borders closed and um, yeah I'm I'm happy to be here and kind of sad to have left America so uh, in in a rush Mm. and things like that but um, also very grateful to be in Australia. So were you uh, did the Australian government send you a notice and say uh, hey Anna you need to get on the airplane right now or we're going to close the borders and you won't get in yeah. or what, yeah what was I, I basically what, got what, um, 
I, I mean, I was reading the news every day, like everyone, and started to see the uh, information coming from Australia asking or Australian citizens to come back home. And um, I realized I couldn't afford a private charter flight back to Australia from the States and uh, was weighing up my options and decided I needed to come back. Wow. Wow. Did you have a place over there that you were, you know, they had to pack up and were you? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I had to pack up. I I was living uh, with my partner. Um, he's there now. But yeah, in a few days I had to pack thinking that it might take a few months, six months, and then now I'm reading maybe even longer to return. But also a, a big decision, and, and I guess uh, something that maybe we can talk about some more is I didn't have health care in America. And so I mm. thought uh, this would not be the best time to not have access to medical services. So that was behind your decision, because I'm, I'm thinking you've got a, a romantic partner mm-hmm. over there and, you know, you have pre-established life. You've been over in, in America for eight mm-hmm. years. But was that the reason why you decided to come it home? It was a big reason. Um, also because my family is here and I wanted to be able to help them. Where I was, so I was in a small town. It's called Athens. It's in southeastern Ohio. It's a college town. And it's quite safe there, actually. Um, there have only been three cases of the coronavirus, one death, and that number hasn't changed for weeks. So it, it was safe there, but looking at um, the services available and as soon as I stopped having health insurance, I felt, and it's been some time now, but I felt very vulnerable in America anyway. And so this really um, put me in a kind of tough spot to make that decision. And I chose a country that had health care, um, which I think is, is, was a good choice, although hard to make. Yeah, absolutely. And when you had the health care, because it's, it's very hard, I think, for Australians to really fully grasp the American system and you know, even Joe Hockey, who was the ambassador to America from Australia, was saying it's just so complicated, the health system there. Can you just sort of give us a bit of it? So you had yeah. healthcare, but obviously when you're employed. Yeah, or- so um, even though I've been in America for over eight years, I don't have a green card. I came to America on an E3 visa, which is a visa that allows Australians to work in the States. Pretty simple to get um, in terms of if you have an employer, then it's very easy to organize. It's not as competitive as the H-1B visa and has really good perks. You can renew it indefinitely. And so I never thought I really needed to get a green card because I'm working and I kind of I was in my mid-20s. I didn't want to commit to anything. So that was a great visa to have. And then I had health insurance through my employer. So it was a co-pay system yeah. and had access to everything that I needed at the time. And then when I decided to leave New York and go to grad school in Ohio, I got health insurance as an international student. So I changed visas from my working visa to an international student visa and had health insurance while I was studying. And then when I stopped studying, I decided that it would be kind of cheaper to pay for a doctor's visit um, than pay into health insurance that wasn't really worth it uh, in terms of the cost. So I'd be paying, you know, I don't know, a couple of hundred, maybe closer to a couple of thousand dollars a year and 
still I would have a lot of out of pocket costs. So I would go to the doctor and it would cost me a substantial amount. I actually needed to get a prescription and I ended up going. So when I didn't have health insurance and I ended up going to my local Walmart, which had a service and you could see a doctor and get prescriptions, which was a really weird experience. I'm not a fan of Walmart and turning to them to go to see a medical specialist wasn't great. And it was funny. I, I think, I think the bill was about a hundred bucks to go see a doctor and get a prescription. And when I said, Oh, that seems expensive. The woman behind the counter said, oh, no, 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 that's a discounted rate given where we are. So wow. um, it really yeah. put things in perspective about, yeah, what happens when you don't have health insurance in America. Now, Anna, uh, you, 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 you were first living in New York when you, when you uh, moved to the United that's States. Right, yeah. Can you talk to our audience about the two vast differences between uh, small town America and a city like New York? or LA or yeah. any of the other bigger cities that you were able to uh, to visit. I mean, I'm from Wichita, Kansas, and it's similar to the small town in Ohio, Athens, where you lived. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's about a, a population over 40,000. Uh, my city was a little bit bigger than that, but in terms of New York and then moving to Athens, can you can you walk us through that? Yeah. Um, so New York is New York City is an island unto itself, and it's it, it's not America. And the only way to really realize that is to is to live in a different state and in a different type of town and realize, oh, okay, that was, that's just, that's something else. New York is very global and has representatives from all over the world. And that was so important to be around many ethnicities and many races because that's what I see in Melbourne. That's how I grew up. And when I came to rural Ohio and everyone basically is white and no one speaks with an accent and being from Melbourne, Australia, having, um, so my background is Russian and having that, that kind of background I was the most exotic thing there. And in New York, I was everyone. I mean, no one cares what accent you speak with. Mm -hmm. Um, That was very strange and kind of hard to adjust to. And I actually, um, so when I would call my folks back in Australia from Ohio and I would speak to them, in Russian, I would make sure I speak really loudly uh, if I'm walking on the street, just so that other people hear another language, you know, around them. Did you experience any racism at all? No, I didn't experience racism because I'm white and Australia Mm -hmm. is, you know, everyone's destination of choice there. I stopped counting how many times people said, I'd love to visit there one day, but it's such a long flight. I mean, I've done that flight multiple number of times. You can get used to it. And especially if you really want to go. But I think many people couldn't afford to come to Australia. That's that's the kind of the thing, the deal breaker. Or they don't have a passport. Or they and most of them yes. don't have a passport. Yeah, that was, that was really interesting to learn. I think a quarter or maybe, maybe a little bit more, maybe a third have a passport. And if they do, they're going to maybe Canada or Mexico. So Jamaica or the Bahamas. Yeah, exactly. Now, yeah. And a Diana asks you if you have if you experienced any racism yeah. uh, directly now did, have you witnessed any of that or 
how, what was your give us an idea of, of, of the problem in America, the racial problem, the, the, the divide between black, brown, white America? Mm-hmm. In New York, I didn't notice it. I, I mean, I know it exists, but I couldn't really, I didn't really spot it out. In Ohio, I lived in a college town, so there were international students, so it was racism was contained, but it would be like comments here or there. But you could, uh, you could feel the sh- like a shift in 2016, especially after the presidential election. And that biggest shift came with the alt-right and kind of white nationalists. And they kind of, they, they existed and they, in rural communities, they existed out there somewhere where you couldn't see them, like in, in the sticks. And then all of a sudden they started mm-hmm. to creep in and they would creep in into so into kind of in the town where I live, like on the main street and you'd see signs and you'd see people who looked like they were part of those groups. What sort of signs? Like what were they? So like, so basically you'd have Patriots first stickers all over. Lots of anti-Semitism started to pop up in my community. So swastikas and things like that. And it happened. What do you think find that in her like did you think that was I mean Trump's kind of I mean regards himself as a friendly to the Jews I mean yeah. something I think but what what do you think was is behind that um I, I think a few things. So I, I don't think Trump is friendly to the Jews. I, I, I think that's that's misguided and that's a mistake to think that he is because so in 2017 there were there were protests in I'm I'm, I'm blanking on the name. It was, it was so it was so big, but there were there were these there was a rally and white nationalists came out. The alt right came out chanting Jews will not replace us and Trump instead of condemning that behavior didn't basically because his support his base a big part of his base are the alt-right and white nationalists who want to reclaim America who feel threatened that there is a diversity that there there are Jews that there's a I, I actually participated in a talk uh, last week talking about this mentality of the alt-right which became kind of this subset of the white nationalists that's my understanding in about 2013 and their whole mentality is the fact that the white Christian person is threatened and one of the biggest threats are Jews because Jews have control and the way they're going to use their control is to allow immigrants to come into America Um, and so they need to be stopped and that that kind of there's lots of like images that are that are sparking that kind of that are in conversation with that kind of thinking so for instance there were in the 2016 presidential campaigns trump had this image of hillary clinton with the the jewish star talking about how you know her connections to the jewish group wow yeah. So, I mean, and I mean, anti anti-Semitism is uh, kind of it hits 
me because I'm because of my background because I'm Jewish. But that is, I mean, that's nothing compared to just generally the racist thinking and behavior that's coming out in America, and also just the number of people since 2016 who've joined white nationalist groups it is staggering. So they always existed, you know. Like I'm sure you've heard that. Trump is the symptom and, you know, he's just bringing out what was already there. And that's true, but it wasn't, it wasn't as, as prevalent. As you said, they were hiding in shadows and now they're, now they've sort of been given license to emerge and, and, and legitimacy, exactly, I guess. Exactly. Um, and, and support. I mean, um, when, when the president is telling people to come out and, and, um, Pro and support their freedom despite this pandemic. Um, and they come out in droves and they come out with guns. It's uh, he's sending very particular signals to people to to people who to defy everything in to save freedom. And that means whatever it, it means racism it could mean violence it could mean um you know protecting the second amendment rights so i think the biggest sort of change is that it's become a more violent country it just it just moves me to think that and and being an american born and bred african-american i was able to see some things but it's gotten a lot worse and for a nation proclaiming to be as christian as it is mm-hmm. um it is alarming to see this behavior. I've taught my son a new word, cacistocracy, uh, and it's just unruliness in states and countries uh, where the citizens are just unruly. And that's what it's becoming. And this, I believe that this next election coming up is just drumming it up. So we saw 2016, now that he has uh, invigorated this base of anti-Semitics. What, in your opinion, Anna, what do you see is going to unfold coming up to the 2020 election? I'm almost afraid for a lot of folks who may decide they want to get out to go and vote and uh, maybe campaign or what what are your what are your feelings about the ne- upcoming election? It's, it's interesting, right? Because there is some right now. There's talks of does Trump have the power to cancel the election or not? I learned a few things about Americans um, over the past eight years, and elections are big, not in terms of how long they run for, how much money is spent, but it's a big deal to have them. I mean, of course, not everyone goes out and votes, but it's part of that whole ethos of this is our freedom, our freedom to choose president. Mm -hmm. I think that if the elections are cancelled, I don't, I mean, I don't know what will happen. Like, it'll it'll be terrible, right? Now, it's interesting. So, a a few weeks back, there were, uh, there were elections in Wisconsin, and the governor of Wisconsin wanted to cancel the elections. And then the state court overruled his decision. I, I forgot the, like, the Supreme, Court. the Supreme Court, yeah, in, in Wisconsin, overruled his um, decision saying, you know, we're going to have elections. And one of the reasons that they wanted to have the, the elections is because for the Supreme Court in Wisconsin, there was a seat coming up and the Republicans wanted to secure that seat. And they thought that they needed the elections because 
basically only people in rural areas will come out to vote and mostly in rural areas, the Republicans. So they thought, let's have these elections to secure that seat and um, we'll just win this election without too much stress about it. Anyway, the elections happened, even though it was dangerous for people to go outside and the Republicans lost that seat because people didn't want them. So, and that was an important moment because it set a precedent that if, if the Republicans thought that the Democrats won't come out to vote, well, they did. They're very much so mistaken and no coronavirus or anything else is going to stop uh, the get out to vote movement, especially during these concerning Mm -hmm. times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And today I read an article that, you know, I think it's going to be kind of, uh, I only got a chance to read one opinion and and it's going to be an unfolding issue, but I think they canceled the primaries in New York State. So the the problem with canceling the primaries in New York State is that uh, the Democratic primaries, that is, is because it might be used as a pre- precedent to cancel the federal election. Yeah, I think they just postponed them. They put. I don't know if they totally canceled because I think that'll create a major problem. Yeah. Okay. Great. Uh, if, the, if it was just postponing, that's wonderful. I I read yeah. canceled, but you know maybe that was. Yeah, it needed to be updated, that story. But still, it's it's really like every single state that has an election, what they do really matters about it. If they cancel it, it could be used against the country come November. So, And I don't know if you... Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you heard, but even the uh, U.S. Postal Service was the the funding wasn't renewed in the U.S. Postal Service because the idea of actually having a vote from home or vote by mail across the nation is freaking a lot of the uh, Republican side out a bit because if I mean we had a a guest on Greenland before and they said he said we have the numbers you know the Democrats have the numbers uh, the progressive have have the numbers and if there was a vote by mail campaign surely the other side would handedly win the election. Yeah, absolutely. I heard that too. And uh, I think it was Mitch McConnell who said that as well, or something something to that effect that, you know, the only way we can win is by not having postal voting. So, yeah, it's very, it's it's dangerous to kind of, to go out and vote. It's dangerous to go out and vote. It's dangerous not to vote. But I do think that maybe different states will handle it differently because clearly different states are handling this pandemic differently. And there are governors that um, actually in my state, uh, Republican or my former state, Ohio, uh, the, (laughs) the governor, Mike Dwine, who is a Republican, has been kind of phenomenal. I'm I'm not a fan of his because I'm not a fan of the Republican Party, but he has been wonderful in terms of closing the state down and keeping it closed despite the pressure from the federal government to open it up. There are several Republicans that are switching over. I mean, Mm -hmm. they're not going to endorse Trump. They're endorsing Biden, you know, like uh, Mitt Romney, for instance. Mm -hmm. Uh, He received... um, uh, Biden received Mitt Romney's endorsement. So even moderate Republicans are switching over from the Republican Party, particularly because how this, I mean, I think that the big hammer was how this coronavirus has been handled right. uh, from the top. Yeah. And one, about time. And two, unfortunately, it was at the cost of so many lives. 
I mean, yeah. the numbers in America are really sh shocking, I would say, considering what America is. It is a was a global leader, a very wealthy country, has incredible medical resources. But yeah, it's, it's, it's really, uh, I, I read an article today about how the word is, we now pity America, uh, which is not something you would have said, you know, a few years back about America, that you pity America. I think the whole thing's going to be, I mean, this, this whole pandemic has shifted the whole ge geopolitical situation on its axis, I think. I mean, the whole thing with China, there's a, there's a rise against China now from a, a niceties point of view. Australia's always tried to be on that tightrope between friendly with America and sort of trying to hold the hand of, of China too because they're the, our biggest trading partner. Yeah. And now this, this whole thing has exposed the fault lines in trying to be, you know, everyone's best mate kind of in the region. And I think there's going to be a lot of change between countries and a lot of this globalisation that's occurred is, you know, Trump had started with this isolationist movement because he wanted to bring jobs back. I mean, that was the kind of the tagline, you know, make America great again by not, not exporting its industry to China in lower cost countries. And now I think... The pandemic has has revealed some of the flaws in, in the globalized world when you're reliant upon countries. I mean, I heard the other day that with this glut of oil that's mm -hmm. that's happening at the moment, you know, Australia's reserves are having to be. We don't have anywhere to store them, and they're actually being stored in America. And it's kind of like, well, America is our most trusted ally, but is it, is it sort of? It's a funny, funny old world that we're in, and how it's going to emerge out of this is going to be an interesting. With the rise of oil, Appalachia was um, hit very hard in terms of its socioeconomic status, yeah. in terms of how the people are living. And, yeah. and uh, I mean, if you look, if you only have to look at that, that region and look at Mississippi and Alabama, the South and West Virginia and, and South Carolina to, to kind of understand what, um, what that whole region, how that whole region has suffered because uh, they're their reliance on coal is, is, is now no longer. Yeah. Um, and you you had an opportunity to see some of those folks, especially some of the rural folks mm -hmm. that are having to deal with that, that backlash. What What's it like? I mean, what, I mean, you're from Australia. Yeah. I mean, this is the land of milk and honey. Yes, I mean, it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure when you wake up and you're walking down the street and you're looking like, what the hell is that? What yeah. did I just see? Yeah. What's going on? So yeah. Can you talk can you take us on that walk? Sure. So I, I felt, yes, yes to all that. But I, I think I want to start with this. So first of all, where I was, which is Southeast Ohio, yes, one of the poorest counties in America, also very beautiful. The town that I was in, it's a college town. It has a university, mid-sized university, so about, I think, 30,000 or so students, somewhere around that number. And so there is public money that goes into the town because there's a public, there's a state university. And then there is not much else going on around in the town and in other smaller towns. So it's kind of like a third world situation. So there are towns that are in a complete economic collapse that used to be coal mining towns with houses built to house miners and their families that have been empty for 
ever and the populations are small and no one cares and why would they care? So there's public money going in to fund the university. So there's some money there, but then there's also people who live on food stamps and social security checks. So uh, public money goes in to fund the grocery bill, which is spent in Walmart. So Walmart is making a lot of money, but obviously their money goes back to shareholders and doesn't stay within the economy. So there is nothing kind of there. People aren't the local economies sort of don't exist. And then there's also money going through Medicare and uh, Medicaid. So Medicare is for older people to have access to healthcare and Medicaid is for poor people to have access to healthcare. So money from those two government services are going, they fund the hospitals. So there are hospitals there, but it's public money. That's that's what's keeping those uh, towns alive. And when that goes and it's going to go, right, because especially with this pandemic, Yes. Yes. Um, th- why would the government put money into a town of 20,000 people when they have to fix cities of millions? But also, this has been going on for decades. And so I visited a few towns that were in really, really bad shape. And, you know, there are buildings that have just been abandoned for years and they're kind of like the brick walls are falling apart and and no one is coming to fix them. There are signs on the highway, things like convenience store needed, you know, like when you see a sign that says, you know, we don't have anywhere to buy food. Uh, Can you open up a store? It really hits you where you are. And, and, And you think America is a first world country. It's a wealthy country. How did it come to this? You know, especially seeing that and having lived in New York. I mean, are you saying how did it come to this or how was it eventually revealed? Because this is this is America. Uh, it's just that when you when you advertise and when you market America, you don't yeah. show all of America. No, you but don't. This this was the forgotten America that now that is now exposed. Yes, yes, and also, and this is really important. Uh, the Appalachian region is opioid central, and oh, yeah, yeah. So people who are people are sick. And if, okay, if you don't have an opioid addiction, perhaps you have diabetes, which is also huge in America. People need help and they need public funding. And what they were promised by Trump in 2016 didn't eventuate. And when you see food banks, which basically are a huge support system in small towns closing, because they don't receive any more funding. You just think, okay, well, how are people going to get their next meal? Right now, I was reading, I think it was, I mean, it's not just in Missouri. I'm sure it's happening in other states too. But there were like these, I don't know, 10 kilometer long lines of cars lined up trying to get to a food bank for people to get food. It is 
Wow. Like, so yes, maybe the, the stimulus checks are going to come, although they're not going to really help because it's like $1,200 mm-hmm. and how long is that going to last? And also they're not being given out to everyone, which is another issue. But like people are hungry n- now. That sense of how are we going to get our next meal? That's not only the pandemic. This has been going on for years, especially in rural community. And that the years of economic stress, I mean, it gets to people. And especially it gets to people who have guns and want to, I, I don't I, I, I know, mean, I know I'm sounding kind of like really dramatic, but. Tell it like it is, tell it like it is, please. What we've already dealt with in America in, in, in terms of the, the poverty circles. This pandemic is just it has just exposed everything. And I'm and I am so glad you are here just to talk about the real deal because yeah. not many people know what happens uh, for people that are, are poor or middle class, even middle class people who spend their entire lives saving college tuition for their students or trying to, to pay off the house. It is very difficult. Uh, to live there if you don't have if you're not wealthy independently wealthy in America that whole television dream you can just watch it and, and put it somewhere else, put it back on the shelf I guess it sounds like it's this unsustainable thing like this small town that's dependent upon which it you know is across America not just where yeah, you exactly. work that's a a microcosm of it and then and it's dependent upon the public purse and you've got these endemic problems of you know drug abuse and everything which is all part of that picture of just a, a broken society and and unless how do you how do you then inject something in there that helps that community become self-sustaining again or that person and that family become able to be self-reliant again but for building infrastructure or, or, or something but I mean what would you do if you were the governor of that town you know I mean what do you have any crying out to be done yeah well <laughs> I mean so there, there are a few things that I think uh, would help things like increasing the minimum wage so the minimum wage in Ohio is $8.55. So to put that in comparison, New York is $12.50, not that much more, I guess, for New York because New York is very expensive to live in. And then the minimum, like the federal minimum wage is $7.25. So I think that, that would help increasing the minimum wage. I think that investing in infrastructure would help because it would create jobs. I am a big fan of the Green New Deal. I think that would really help America and really set it up for the future. I think it's going to be globally that's where we're going to move or I don't know anymore because I think one of the fallouts from um, this pandemic is that people have forgotten about the climate crisis. People going to go drive their cars because petrol is so cheap now. But you know, less 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 planes in the air. You know, That's it's like true. Um, I mean, it's the pandemic has really helped the environment uh, in a way. Yeah, and, and hopefully it will kind of re um, restart us and, and continue to be that way. But yes, I agree. It, it, there's definitely the air is cleaner, and uh, I heard that there are animals roaming. <laughs> some cities. So I also think that education is a big part of it. So having, um, investing in education. Also, I think really addressing the 
opioid pandemic uh, epidemic in that area so that there is adequate support to help people because it becomes a cycle and and I think that's that's the biggest problem that I've seen with poverty it, it becomes a cycle once you get into it you don't know how to get out of it there is no safety net uh, like there is in Australia there's no safety net in America and so trying to create some sense of I mean, I, th- I think communities can be self-sufficient and not necessarily rely on public funding, but I do think they need uh, support in place to do that. You know, there's work to be done in America. No. Like th- there, there are these, I mean, the roads need fixing <laughs> for one. Yeah. yeah. yeah the infrastructure is terrible. When I was in the Senate, I, um, I was able to get a bill through uh, called Senate Bill 123. It was a rehabilitation instead of incarceration bill. Mm-hmm. Because if you notice, people were, are being incarcerated on low-level crime, mm-hmm. uh, low-level drug offenses, and it's overpopulating the prison system, which is a fiscal note that the states cannot handle anymore. So I think you were, you're very correct in terms of the opioid, opioid crisis and doing something about the whole drug issue. Because if you can't manage that, then you can't manage a healthy home. Someone's on drugs at home, they're constantly stealing the food and selling it or stealing the clothes and selling them or the shoes or the playstations or the televisions. There's no stability in household. It's just, uh, it's a mess. The infrastructure, everything. And then you, you come from Ohio. The day you got on the airplane and you arrived back to the, at the telemarine, Tell us how you felt. I mean, I know you, I know you miss your partner and all of that. But when you arrive back on Australian shores, talk to us about how that. I want to. I want to refresh me on how that feeling is again. Well, um, I, I have come back to Australia a number of times. I, I visit regularly, but just to put it in perspective, right? So I left America with no health insurance and no way of getting health insurance at all unless I paid for it. And the very day I arrived that same day, I registered with Centrelink and a few days or maybe a week later, I got a Centrelink payment for unemployment because you can do that in Australia as an Australian citizen. I could go to a doctor. I didn't need to, but you know, I could go to a doctor without worrying about it. And I mean, that stress of like, well, what am I going to do now? It doesn't you're covered. You're covered with the basics and that helps. And also because of that, because you don't have to worry about, you know, how am I going to pay the doctor? You have a lot of trust in the system and, you know, you follow the rules, right? You're not going to be creative about how you're going to get yourself to a doctor if that's not going to be a problem for you. I I read this, this horrible thing, um, about this one man, one doctor talking about a patient in, this was in New York and he, he was in the hospital because of uh, the coronavirus and they were going to put a tube to help him breathe. Uh, Usually when they were going, when they, the doctor was saying that usually when they put tubes in patients, it's not good news. And so they said to this gentleman, you know, can we call your wife? Because it might be a while until you talk to her again. And the first thing he said wasn't, okay, great, call my wife or here's her phone number. Or he said, who's going to pay for this tube? You know, like this man is nearly on his deathbed. And the first thought that he has is who's going to cover this medical bill? That kind of stress 
because it, it it's not a reality in Australia. It's, it's it's hard to sometimes explain how that changes your relationship to your country, to the people around you, to you know your motivation to build Australia, contribute Australia to to Australia. It's it's kind of two different worlds. That's that's a really good example, and you know, and I think that's where the the differences become so apparent in our two cultures. Is you know we have a very similar way of life in many respects to America, but the value placed on that life, you know, and the, and the ability for an individual to contribute and be supported mm-hmm. is very different. And you know, it's funny that this app, the COVID nineteen app that the federal government has rolled out, there's always the conspiracy theorists and the people that have concerns about the government tracking their movements in order to then share that information if they've been in contact with somebody with the virus. But I mean, I can't imagine that, and there's been quite a high uptake of it, but I can't imagine that in America that necessarily that would be the case because there is this just underlying inherent distrust of government being involved in affairs. Yes. But in cases like this, in times like this, this is where you do need government to support people to, you get off the plane, you can get a check in your your hand to help you forever until you get a job now. And similarly, as a business owner, there's there's things, everybody is helped, doesn't matter what stage you're at. It's quite overwhelming. And I I don't think I've ever been sort of more happy or prouder to be an Australian than I am right now, not just because there's a lot of support financially, but that people genuinely feel that they're that it's not just their own plight and that they have to just sort of wear it themselves there's a whole community and a government behind them Adina, and I, I believe that um, Australians are excited and ready for the charge to 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 build Australia back stronger together again. I can see Australians itching, they're running and exercising, getting ready to build this country back even stronger than what it was before because we were hit with the bushfires and then with the the COVID. And before that was the global financial crisis. And back to back, time after time, Australians have been able to bounce back like warriors. I am so proud of this country. I'm so proud to be an Australian citizen. Uh, You know, I'm I'm proud to be an American citizen too, but the leadership has got me wanting to, you know, just, you know, run. And I'm glad I'm here while certain leadership is, is in place. But in terms of Australia, I mean, just remarkable. Uh, just a remarkable place to be, a remarkable example for the rest of the world to follow. And I thank you so much for joining us today. Thank, thank you, so you much. very much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for listening to us today on Greenland. If you'd like to become a Greenlander, visit greenlandthepodcast.com and follow the links to subscribe. We'd also really appreciate it if you could leave us a review on your chosen podcast listening app. Um, That really helps us to kind of percolate to the top and to also get a nice little bit of feedback from you guys. If you'd like to send us an email, you'll find uh, links to contact us on our webpage as well. So thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week. (music) 